0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. Today, I'd like to feature an interview with North Carolina author Stacey Hawks. Her book, Dividing Ridge The Unsolved Murder of Elva Brannock, is a cross between true crime and historical fiction. Here's the synopsis Dividing Ridge is based on a true story of an unsolved crime that took place along the Blue Ridge Parkway in Allegheny, North Carolina in 1937. After a young woman goes missing on her way to school, a community is left on edge. With news spreading quickly of her disappearance and gossip swirling, it is up to local law enforcement to restore a sense of safety and one determined sheriff to bring justice to her family. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Hello everyone and thanks for joining us today. I'd like to welcome author Stacy Hawks. Stacy is a resident of Allegheny County, North Carolina located in the Blue Ridge Mountains after graduating from Allegheny High School as a North Carolina scholar, Stacy received her Associate of Arts degree from Wilkes Community College in History. In 2008, she graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in History from Brevard, North Carolina, and in 2011, with a Master's in Education from Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Stacy is also a published poet, and the author of a research paper during her time in Brevard, she focuses on the creation of the Blue Ridge Parkway and its impact on Appalachia. As a result of her research, she was awarded the History Project of the Year by the Brevard College History Department in 2008. Stacy is an author-in-residence for Appalachian Memory Keepers and a member of Allegheny Writers. Hi, Stacy. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited for our listeners to learn about your book and your research process. Um, If it's okay, I just want to dive right in. Okay, go ahead. So the first question I had was how did you first learn about the unsolved murder of Elva Brannock? Well, I was in high school
1: and My grandmother was showing me her scrapbook that she kept, and she kept a lot of different things in the scrapbook over the years, articles, newspaper clippings, that sort of thing. And this article just sort of stood out to me, and she was kind of explaining to me the story and what had happened. And apparently no one had picked up the case since 1981 in the newspapers. And so then when I graduated college and I came back home, I had somehow ended up with this scrapbook in my collection and was going back through, and there's that story again. And I just thought, hey, you know, this would make a great research project, basically, and just to see what did
0: happen. Exactly. Can you give us a little bit of background on Elva and her family? Sure.
1: So Elva Brannock was 17 years old and had been described as a local by the local and even national newspapers as a tall brunette beauty. Uh, She was, um, there's a photo of Elva in the book, and you'll you'll see it. I mean, she was a very beautiful young woman. Um, She was the daughter of a farmer, and there were lots of farms in Allegheny during that time. Her mother was a stay-at-home caretaker for the children, of which Elva was their eighth, so she was like their last child. Her older sister, Nora Branick, married and moved to Grayson County, per the article written by Terry Martin of the Winston-Salem Journal in 1981, and her sister's Her sister's murder really impacted her life, but Ethel was also really close to um, Elva, and she's featured in the photo that everyone sees in the book, and actually she ended up fostering 27 children over the years with her husband, so it's really interesting to dive into the family history and their genealogy
0: too. I did want to segue into that for a second since you mentioned it. So you work as a genealogist, right? Yes, I'm a people hunter, is what I say. Oh, that's so fascinating. Um, but I guess it can probably uh, send you down some rabbit holes unnecessarily. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it certainly can. It can be addicting and you can find something you say, oh, look at this. This is so neat. And it'll lead you down some crazy path. And the next thing you know, you've built out a whole other section of the tree. Um, but yeah, it's always fun to dive into stuff like that. And Being able to incorporate the genealogy work with the history work and the research
0: is really important too. I think it is. Um, Yeah. And that's what I wanted to ask you about next was what was the research process like for this book? It was very
1: similar to researching the paper that I did at Brevard College, where I talked about the New Deal and the impact the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC, had on rural Appalachia. So I started with what I knew and the books that I was already familiar with and had worked my way um, up to some other primary documents like birth certificates, death certificates, collecting names, and information to reach out to people for interviews. There is an interview in the book. It required a lot of nights, weekends, holidays, spare moments. You know, just any time I had at all, I was thinking about this book or writing about this book or doing up little sketches for it. Our local newspaper has been great about preserving our newspapers, too, from 1920 forward and their archives. So I spent a lot of time there. I'm sure they were wondering, like, what are you doing <laughs> coming in on weekends and, and on holidays and things like that? Just any time off I had, I was either there at the Registered deeds Office or our courthouse.
0: Yeah, I have lived in North Carolina since 1988, I believe, and I've, I have never learned about this history of the Blue Ridge Parkway. So I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit, since you did such an extensive research project on it, um, as part of the New Deal that was going on at the time, what did you learn that maybe a lot of us don't know? So Allegheny is home to um,
1: Senator Robert Doughton, a representative Robert Downton, and he was actually the father of the Blue Ridge Parkway. That's what we call him. And Section 2B was started um, near Sparta, and that's our section of the parkway. So it goes pretty much from the beginning, almost down to Wilkesburg, that kind of area. So that's sort of the area that I'm talking about, and the area that I was really interested in when I did my research. It's just it's it's a it's a it's a huge project. Many people have written about it over the years. Um everybody from Conrad Rith to I'm trying to think of her name. <laughs> Margaret Mitchell. <laughs> oh no, it's not it. Let's see. I was trying to think. Anne wisnett Anne Wisnet. There she is. Anne okay. wisnett Yeah, Anne wisnett She wrote super, a super scenic motorway. And that was one of the books that I had to read for my projects. But I mean, it is a huge area to to you know just to explore and just a huge topic to dive into. But Allegheny County was part of Ash County in 1859 too. So I had a look at Ash and all these other different counties that were surrounding us and see how they kind of pieced together with the parkway.
0: How long did you spend researching the case before you kind of figured out how you would architect the structure of the book? Oh gosh,
1: I think I, I dove in probably, I want to say that I dove in to the research first research aspect of it and just start looking at newspaper clippings and just seeing what I could find it was probably a good six months into researching and gosh I could spend all day researching I think um <laughs> once I get on to something that I'm really interested in but um but it was probably about a six month period and then I realized all of a sudden this is not just a research project this is not just a research paper this is going to be something more because I started hearing the voices of these individuals going back and forth and thinking wow the conversations they must have had you know about this case and who I was connected in this case and what they must have felt and went through especially the family so that's kind of it it, that's kind of where it ended pretty much as far as a research project was
0: about six months in and then it became a book right and the family was so large and colorful (laughs) hard work working um, i can see how you would want to include some of that language in there so it's i guess it's considered more of a historical fiction book than a true crime book necessarily yeah and it was
1: kind of it was kind of strange how that turned out because i was like well i want to add truth to it because you know the newspaper clippings and things i don't i don't no one had ever no one had seen them you know since it happened pretty much so i thought well that'd be nice to include too and follow that timeline and stay true to
0: that timeline So give us a little background on what happened uh, to Elva Brannock. So what happened was
1: she went missing on her way to school. And then all of a sudden, got, you know, everybody's kind of on alert. And the, the sheriff gets notified that, hey, we have a missing girl out in the Saddle Mountain community in Allegheny County. And he goes out and talks to the family. The family's done been around to like her teacher, um, you know, to her friends, just trying to figure out where she might have been or if she was with somebody that afternoon because she didn't come home. So then the sheriff takes it up and they put together search parties, search parties of 200 plus people come out and look for this girl. And it's just, it's really kind of a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult topic for sure to explore, but it was a lot, it was, it was really interesting too to see the, the community turn out the way it did.
0: Why do you think that the story was picked up again in 1981 after being like nobody writing about it for so long? Was there just a reporter that discovered it and maybe decided to look into it again?
1: I think so. I think so. I think it was just Terry Martin just being kind of curious to see where things landed or see where things, you know, stood at that time, because by then it had been quite a few years, you know, till since nobody had said anything else about it. Also, um, Joe Roberts, the sheriff here in Allegheny County, was the last sheriff to actually investigate the case. And he was the sheriff during the 1980s. He really went hard trying to figure out who did this um, to Elvis so that he could give the family
0: some answers. What do you think have been some of the most prevalent theories of what happened to her? Well,
1: first, it was someone that she knew for a lot of reasons. Most believe that it was someone she knew, someone she trusted, but who turned out to maybe be jealous of her or possessive in some way. Um, the way your body was found told the sheriff and other investigators in this story a great deal. Mind you, the SBI even got involved in this case and the FBI briefly. So a lot of eyes were on this. And from, the, and from reading Douglas and Ola Shaker, their book called The Anatomy of Murder of a Murderer, it kind of backs up that story or that theory.
0: Right. That was, some, it seemed to me like some of the sort of early profiling was done in this yeah. when they were, when they were talking about that. Yeah. What, and, true crime is such a sorry. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> and the second one was, of course, the Civilian Conservation Corps work, workers, because they, you know, and there was also that belief out there. There was more than one killer. So it might have been more than one of these guys going at it, which might make sense. Elva was tall and she would have not been easily moved. However, the doc- a doctor showed even said in the paper that her body was dragged for several feet. So at some point, you know, that kind of didn't fit either. But she was found ways from where she had been seen to from where she'd been last seen so this part is a maybe for me I don't I don't know if that theory really holds any kind of (laughs) any kind of water but you know as a parkway worker these guys could just pick up and leave and not Mm. come back and then of course the third theory was the moonshiner theory and this theory made no sense for me either because although they were moonshiners here in the county moonshiners never placed their stills in view of anything they kept them hidden near water supplies and guarded possibly.
0: Right. Very unlikely that she had stumbled upon anything like that, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I thought too when I was reading about that. The I thought it was interesting the way the local community looked at the Parkway Project as charity, accepting charity, mm-hmm. like They didn't want to work for it, yeah, because it seemed like they were taking a handout. So that made me wonder: were there really were the people that were working on that project not local? Were they
1: there? There was a lot of local people working on that Parkway project. Three hundred and some, as a matter of fact, I learned through my research at college. So that was kind of new and refreshing too, because there are some people that still held out and say, "Well, you know, it's a government handout. We don't want it. It's charity." Um, we 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 can do our own thing. We can have our own jobs. We can make our own money. And in a lot of cases, a lot of people were—they were making it through moonshine. <laughs> so so, <laughs> e- so either way, I mean that there are just some people that were just proud and just didn't accept that assistance, which was fine. But there were other people, three hundred and some of them here in Allegheny County and around that did take the Parkway Project jobs. And we actually have a CCC camp, or did have, out at Laurel Springs. So it's not really far from my home.
0: Oh, that's interesting. What advice would you give any aspiring writers who are interested in writing about true crime?
1: Well, I would say, um, <laughs> utilize as many primary resources as possible because, Something that someone you may interview or says to you could be a great scene for your book, and it can provide you more insight into who to talk to with next or what questions to ask down the road vital records understanding the dynamics of those involved in the story is key right down to their family history. And I would say that, you know, newspapers are also a must, you know, don't discount your local newspaper, don't discount your the newspapers around the country, especially, I mean, I use newspapers.com as a historian. I love that thing. Mm-hmm. But in many, in many cases, um, you know, you, you might even have to use those newspaper clippings. And if you do, just be aware of the copyright and just be mindful of copyright laws.
0: Oh, you mean like if you're printing images of them? Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. You definitely, sometimes you have to look at that because you may end up owing that newspaper or the AP, the Associated Press for those uh, comments or those little citations and things that you
0: put in your book. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. So speaking of true crime, are there any other cold cases in the state of North Carolina that have piqued your interest over the years?
1: I think the Lost Colony will haunt every North Carolinian and historian until it's officially solved. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just one that's just going to haunt everybody. Now I'm seeing these things out about the Dare Stones, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I haven't heard about the Dare Stones in years, but they're coming out with more articles about that. But there is one crime that I thought was really kind of interesting and it kind of stood out to me. It was called um, what actually happened to Debbie Wolf in Fayetteville, North Carolina. On Christmas night, she went missing and her family ended up dragging the pond to her on her property after they couldn't find her for a while. And they found her inside of a barrel wearing clothes that were not hers. And it was ruled an accident. I remember that one. (laughs) Blows my mind. I I just said, why why?" (laughs) is this ruled an accident and not a murder? So yeah, so my my heart goes out to her family too, because I don't think that's, you know, I don't know. I think more could have been done there for that.
0: Yeah. That was a really bizarre one. And, and wasn't, I think, I think her house had, there were some items in her house that didn't belong to her maybe. Um,
1: Yeah. And just, just weird things just kept showing up and family members was like, this isn't right. This has to be a murder. They really tried, I think, to get the police department to steer in that direction, but you don't end up in a barrel floating in the bottom of your pond by accident.
0: No. And I, and I think, I think the police tried to say that she had been walking her dogs and fell into the pond and ended up in a barrel or something. And yeah. I was like, how on earth no. um, could that have, they, they really needed an accident reconstruction specialist out there to try to explain how that must've happened. Um, they, yeah. they really did. And I don't know what year, I think,
1: was that like in the eighties or seventies? It was 70s, I think in the eighties
0: or early nineties. Yeah.
1: yeah. So like they needed some, they needed, they needed to re- go back and try maybe to reinvestigate that I think
0: they did I I, I totally agree with you on. and I, th- I think I first saw that one on unsolved mysteries years ago oh gosh <laughs> yeah right I
1: love it I'm loving their podcast right now I'm following the unsolved mysteries podcast <laughs> That's absolutely amazing and that guy's got a great voice but I miss Robert
0: Stack I do too I think I think everybody that listens to this podcast is an unsolved mysteries fan <laughs> I've talked to so many people <laughs> that can relate to that. It was really funny. Um, What else do we need to know about Dividing Ridge? Well, it's an NC Literary Map book,
1: and the NC Literary Map is home to some of the most well-known authors in North Carolina, like Donna Everhart, George Ann Eubanks, Charlie Lovett, and others. And so for years, Allegheny's not had a single author make it onto the map. We've had a soul and water report on there from like the 1910s. <laughs> but I was like, I was like, I've got to get this book on the NC literary map. So we finally did. And uh, the book also won the North Carolina historian society of historians award for excellence 2021 this week. So we're really excited about that. Thank you.
0: What, what has, what are you working on now? Cause I know you're working. Don't you have another couple of books coming out?
1: I have um, on Saturday, November the 20th, Devil's Ridge will be out and it is about... Moonshine and Fast Cars. It's done a little bit differently. This is also pulled from a, a story that happened in my community. It's based loosely on that story, but it features some of the same characters that people will see in Dividing Ridge, like my MC, Walter Irwin, who is, was actually a real person. There's a lot of actual real people in my books, uh, but this one is out on Saturday. It's in Kindle and paperback format. And then we hope to have Dividing Ridge on audiobook soon, too. And Dividing Ridge will be on sale Saturday for 99 cents. So in Kindle format.
0: Okay. That's great. How long do you think that's going to last?
1: Oh gosh. Um, probably it'll probably last November the 20th to the 22nd with a sale. Okay. To celebrate divide line up. Yeah. Yeah. To celebrate Devil's Ridge coming out and encourage people to take a look at that too.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's all the questions I had. Um, and people will I didn't dig too deep into the book because I really didn't want to give anything away right <laughs> because that's all part you know so if anybody's going well, why didn't you talk more about the theories and who did what well you have to read the
1: book right I had yeah I had to t- I had to tell uh Allison Clack when I did her when I did her podcast I was like Allison you're going to give away my ending she's like no I'm to try not to give away your ending she was so sweet but um if you asked me about the different you know what I had learned about the parkway and all that when I was researching it And um, I just, I did want to add too that I learned some of the history behind some of the overlooks and their names and the photo on the cover of my book is of Devil's Garden. It's here in Allegheny County. And this thing (laughs) is called Devil's Garden because there's all these snakes around on the trail below it. So I didn't know that prior to taking photos and going out there and then having to you know, look, you know, look into it a little bit more. So that was just something
0: interesting. I found maybe you can use that clip. What kind of
1: snake? Like cotton mouse.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Those are not friendly snakes.
1: No, (laughs) no,
0: no. Oh yeah. It would be interesting to know because some of those overlooks do have some really interesting names, Um, but I'm I'm glad you survived your trip out there to take the photo. (laughs) Yeah. The overlook is fine. It's just like when you get down the trail and you can walk it so you can
1: walk that all the way up and I was like oh there's no way I'm doing that
0: (laughs) oh my goodness well I I think that's all we had um and I just wanted to thank you again for your time today and where I know I need to ask where can we find your book
1: you can find my book on Amazon and you can also find it on bookshop. If you'd like to support your local indie bookstore, you can okay. visit Dividing Ridge Books at dividingridgebooks.webador.com to get all of my publications, gifts, and more.
0: Okay. And I will put that information in our show notes too, in case anyone wants to go directly click on the links that will be available. Sure. Um, again, Stacy, thank you so much for joining us today and, um, keep listening to the podcast. I'm so happy to hear you're a fan and, um, have a great rest of
1: the day. Thank you. You too. I really appreciate and I appreciate being here. I hope everyone enjoys the holiday season. And if you do need, if you do need the link tree, uh, link, just let me know. I'll send okay. it to you.
0: Sounds okay. great. Yeah. Go ahead and email that to me and I'll get okay. that put up there. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. Be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are available. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered. Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.